0: Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, um, I should start with a, an addendum to the last podcast on vaccines and vaccine hesitancy that I did with Eric Topol. Some of the responses I received to that have been astoundingly stupid. Uh, I guess that's not a total surprise. I don't feel like dealing with too many specifics here. One criticism I do take to heart, if only because it came in one form from my wife, is that uh, despite my saying that I wanted to remain non-judgmental and try to produce a document that the vaccine-averse could actually receive without feeling denigrated in any way, I didn't try hard enough. And uh, certainly my guest, Eric, didn't try hard enough. Uh, There I would have to say we are guilty as charged. And in truth, I'm not even sure it's the right target. I mean, there is something patronizing about the claim that in order to reach the vaccine hesitant, you have to walk on eggshells so as to not make them feel judged. Nevertheless, I do see the depressing results of the last podcast all around me. Uh, Those who were disposed to agree with me absolutely loved it and were grateful, and those who are worried about the COVID vaccines and taken in by what they've heard on Brett Weinstein's podcast or Tucker Carlson or wherever, thought uh, Eric and I were totally clueless about the state of the conversation that's happening over there. I don't actually know what the solution is here, because I, you know, some people ask, well, why not just have Brett on the podcast to talk about all this? But I think that would be a bad idea, not because I don't think there are adequate answers to the kinds of points he would raise, but like so many debates on fairly fringe topics, you know, classic conspiracy theories, religious fundamentalism, many points can't be addressed in real time. Many anomalies can't be fully explained, right? And it can give a sense of uncertainty that is truly unwarranted. So there are many cases where merely having the conversation can be misleading for many, many people. And in this case, in the middle of a public health crisis, I think it is irresponsible to... Run this just asking questions routine in public. That's, that really is my objection to what Brett is doing. It's just too easy for even smart people to come away from a discussion on these topics confused and by default disposed to not do anything, which is to say, not get vaccinated. There's so many things at play here. There's the fact that sticking a needle in your arm really seems like something intrusive, right? People are afraid of needles. They find the whole thing unpleasant. They certainly find it unpleasant to have someone do it to their kids, right? And it's interesting to consider how the debate here would be different if the vaccine were delivered as a chewable gummy or as a nasal spray, right? I think that would feel different to many people. But the default is to feel that getting vaccinated or getting your kids vaccinated is an act of commission which entails greater ethical concern and responsibility than an act of omission, right? Not doing something. Not doing something is who can fault you for just sitting on your hands? Well in this case you become part of a petri dish potentially, breeding new variants of this virus. And you're a free rider on herd immunity if it were ever achieved. And I think it is appropriate to judge people for taking that position. It is not merely a choice you're making for yourself. Even choosing not to wear a seatbelt isn't merely a choice you're making for yourself. I mean, there, you don't have the problem of epidemiology. But if you are not wearing a seatbelt and you're thrown from your car in an accident and horribly injured, society pays the costs of that. Your medical bills raise the costs of insurance for everyone. And if you're uninsured, society bears those costs, right? And society is bearing the costs of people who are landing in ICUs with severe complications from COVID when it wasn't necessary at this point. I think it's totally appropriate to put the onus on the vaccine hesitant here. Unless, of course, they have really compelling reasons not to want to get vaccinated. And there's some people who do, there are the very people who, for whom herd immunity is such an important variable, the people who are immunocompromised in various ways, or who have terrible reactions to vaccines. There are people like this who can't get vaccinated, and those are precisely the people one is thinking about when championing the virtues of herd immunity. So it's hard to get past a sense that what is happening among the vaccine-hesitant is, given the state of our current information, a failed commitment to the common good. You are helping prolong a problem that need not be prolonged. We know these vaccines work, and we know they're safe enough at this point, certainly compared to the problem of getting COVID without the benefit of getting vaccinated. And if I didn't believe we knew this, then there might be something to debate. But just as I'm not going to have a podcast where someone's haranguing me about thermites and the melting point of steel, I'm not going to have a debate about these vaccines in the absence of truly compelling evidence. And to give you a sense of how weak the evidence is out there, I mean, just when I saw Brett's response to my podcast, one of the things he and his wife Heather did on Their podcast is single out for distinction, a wonderful thread on Twitter by someone named Alexandros Marinos, who dissected my podcast with Eric Topol minute by minute. And, uh, And Brett and Heather recommended that people study this thread as a demolition of that episode. Again, there's no reason to go into the details here, but so much of this was. So obviously missing the point and silly, but I'll just flag one thing that should alert Brett and Heather to how far into the precincts of paranoia they've wandered. At one point, Alexandros references my claim that we could take the worst fears of the vaccine hesitant at face value and it would still be rational to get vaccinated the worst fears being that the the VARES database is reporting real numbers of deaths associated with the vaccine, suggesting that as many as 12,000 people may have died outright from it. And Alexandros admonishes me to be more careful than that, because actually, because of the UI and UX concerns of this database, people fear that the problem may be tenfold greater than reported. So now I'm being asked to imagine that 120,000 people in the U.S have died outright by being vaccinated. No one died in the clinical trials, but 120,000 people may have died in the last few months, and, and no one is really noticing, apparently. right? But I mean, what's, what's happening here? Are ICUs filling up with people who were just vaccinated? Is that what I'm asked to believe? Or are these people dying in their homes and no one knows about it? There's absolutely no reason to believe. Anything like that. Okay, so if you are in a social context where those fears seem plausible to you, you have been lured into some kind of information backwater that is not good for your mind. And it's certainly not good for our collective well being. Actually, there was another thread that's even more to the point, which Brett also singled out as absolutely indispensable for our understanding of what's going on among the vaccine hesitant. And this comes from someone named Constantin Kissin. It's a very long thread, but the first tweet reads, You're struggling to understand why some people are vaccine-hesitant. The let-me-help-you mega-thread. Imagine you're a normal person. The year is 2016. Rightly or wrongly, you believe most of what you see in the media. You believe polls are broadly reflective of public opinion. You believe doctors and scientists are trustworthy and independent. You're a decent, reasonable person who follows the rules and trusts authority. And then he goes through all of the insults to this naive way of thinking that have occurred in the last five years or so. He talks about Brexit, election of Trump, and the claim that Russians were involved in getting him elected, the Steele dossier, the Jesse Smollett hoax, the Covington Catholic high school affair the capitulation of various institutions, medical and otherwise, to wokeism, all the epidemiologists who shrieked about COVID when people on the far right were protesting. But the moment the protest for George Floyd erupted, they not only didn't judge the protesters, but asserted that protesting was itself a contribution to public health. All of these insults to reasonableness and instances of public hypocrisy, and just, just the full litany here. So he runs through all of this as an explanation for why the vaccine hesitant now no longer trusts authority of any kind, the government, scientists, scientific journals, public health officials, as though this explains it all. I would quibble with a couple of things Constantine said in his litany of abuse, but the general shape of it is something I totally accept. Yes, there has been an impressive breakdown in our institutions, and in particular the media, and the way in which politics has deranged our public conversation more or less on every topic. But the one thing that this analysis does not explain is the thinking of those of us who have still followed the plot those of us who experienced all of these insults to our intelligence and yet still managed to understand that Trump really was a threat to our democracy. And if the side of a U.S. president not committing to a peaceful transfer of power doesn't convince you on that point, nothing will. And in the case of COVID, despite all of the failures of clear thinking and clear public health messaging, Many of us still understand that the vaccines are incredibly effective, and all things considered, it is far wiser to be vaccinated at this point than to be running the risk of getting COVID without having been vaccinated. It's possible to keep the big picture in view. Here's the big picture. The failings of our institutions need not lead to a total breakdown of trust In our institutions, it is possible to exaggerate how much our institutions have failed. And that is what is most objectionable and so dysfunctional about what Brett is doing with his podcast. This just asking questions routine is corrosive of public trust at a time where the failure of trust translates into disease and death, an unnecessary risk of disease and death for others. Right? We're in the middle of a pandemic. There is no compelling reason at this point to be worried about these vaccines. There is a compelling reason to be worried about just letting this pandemic burn through the unvaccinated population. Right? We should be spreading these vaccines to the entire world at this point. And we need institutions right? We need to repair our institutions. We need to criticize them for their failures. But the idea that we can navigate a global public health emergency by podcast and substack newsletter is patently ridiculous. We need a functioning CDC and FDA and WHO. We need medical journals that are credible. And it's this breakdown in legitimacy or perceived legitimacy That is proving so dysfunctional. So, my issue with what Brett is doing is that he's doing it in public. Fine, if you're uncomfortable getting vaccinated, you want to make that private decision for yourself and your family. Well, fine, I don't agree with it, but that is very different than making it a public cause to convince as many people as possible that they should be worried about these vaccines. There is no compelling reason at this moment to be worried about these vaccines. And yet you're devoting podcast after podcast to spreading that fear, again, in the middle of a pandemic. That's the part that doesn't make any sense. That's the part that seems unethical and irresponsible. Of course it's possible to worry about the long-term safety implications of these vaccines or of any other New medical intervention for which long term safety data are unavailable. I'm not saying it's crazy to worry about these things. I'm saying that all things considered, it's not reasonable and it's not reasonable to stoke those fears in millions of people. We have a forced choice. You can get exposed to COVID without having been vaccinated or after having been vaccinated. That's the choice. Of course, Brett thinks there's a third. Choice, you can be exposed while taking ivermectin prophylactically. But he admits that ivermectin is not widely available, that most people can't get their hands on it. So this isn't an option for his audience, for the most part, even if he could justify it for himself, which again, I don't think he can really do. So this really is the crux of the matter, which I would put directly to Brett. What public good? is being served by spreading fear of the COVID vaccines to millions of people who have no rational alternative, really, but to be vaccinated. We have every reason to believe that the long-term implications of getting COVID without having been vaccinated are worse. Take the concerns about election fraud that are endemic on the political right at the moment. Now, is it completely insane to be concerned about election fraud? No, election fraud is certainly a possibility that we should be worried about. We should guard against it. We're absolutely right to want to be confident in the results of our elections. And if there's new technology that we introduce that turns out to be hackable, you know, all of that is a concern, right? So it's not, you're not crazy to be thinking about election integrity. And happily, many smart people on both sides of the aisle have thought a lot about it. It turns out that there's no significant evidence of election fraud. But should we be on guard against this? Of course. But what we have among Republicans at the moment is the utterly delusional claim that the 2020 election was stolen. And this has become a crystal of doubt Around which an insane personality cult has formed. So the merely asking questions routine is in bad faith, or it's totally oblivious to the corrosive effects of asking certain questions again and again. I'm not going to have someone on the podcast to talk about the 2020 election who's going to say, well, what about the 4,000 ballots in Phoenix that went missing when it's impossible to respond? a claim like that. You platform a claim like that that you can't possibly respond to. I don't know if it's made up. I don't know how many journalists it would take to track it down, but I know that in the general picture of things, the incentives are such that the claim is guaranteed to be spurious. We're talking about an election which, in the relevant case, was governed by Republican election officials. And there were Republican judges who heard these challenges and threw them out. Right? The incentives were never there to produce a massive fraud. All of this is virtually guaranteed to be bullshit. Now, is it conceivable that some facts will come to light so that I'll have to recant this statement? Sure, it's conceivable. And it's conceivable that in some years we'll discover that MRNA vaccines were more dangerous than we thought, and that Ivermectin is a far more potent prophylactic against COVID than we have any right to believe now. But the question is, what is it rational to believe and do now, given the information we have? Anyway, as I said, I I don't actually think there's much to say on this topic. I do think it is quite straightforward. We have enough information to know what happens to people, generally speaking, when they get these vaccines. And the differential outcomes for the vaccinated and unvaccinated who get COVID, that part really isn't debatable anymore. So if we want to get society back to something like normal, globally speaking, I think we have an ethical obligation to help get the world vaccinated against this disease. And it's worth considering what the world will look like if we get a variant that is far more deadly than those currently circulating. How will the just-asking-questions routine look in the case of something that's killing 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 percent of those it infects? Hopefully we'll never experience such a thing. But under those conditions, to get a vaccine that works and not to use it, and to argue against its use, should be unthinkable. And I'm not so sure it is at this point. Again, I think we're in the presence of something like a religious or pseudo-religious phenomenon. People are just not thinking clearly. And mere contrarianism is becoming part of their identities. There's something pornographic about all this. This reflexive distrust of institutional authority is like the pornography of doubt. People are infatuated with this stuff, and there's a, there's a zealotry around it, and the quality of the thinking is so bad in so many cases. Given my experience on other topics, it's impossible to shake the feeling of familiarity here. This is what it's like to argue about religion or the 9-11 truth conspiracy. And those fronts, I've learned to pick my battles, because getting into the trenches is so unrewarding. COVID aside, we have a much larger problem on our hands. But we have to figure out how to solve this riddle of how do we improve our institutions and trust them when we should, all the while recognizing they become less worthy of that trust. It's like we have to repair an airplane as it's flying, right? And not do anything so stupid or iconoclastic that it just falls out of the sky. And that's what I perceive Brett and his audience to be doing. We're just asking questions. We're just doubting everything. We're just being scientific skeptics. Show us the data. I'll believe it when you show it to me. Oh, but what about this little wrinkle over here? You know the jet fuel only burns at 1,500 degrees Fahrenheit and the melting point of steel is 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit and you mean to tell me that those planes brought down those buildings? Have you heard of thermite? I've got a 90-page master's thesis I want you to read on the thermite hypothesis. Can you set a day aside for that? That's where we are. And it matters that people like Brett are choosing to contribute to that side of the conversation. Okay. And now getting to your questions. Hi, Sam. My name is Walt Dalcash, and I live in Dublin, Ireland. My question for you is, how can I inoculate my biracial children against the identity politics ideology they are bound to encounter at school and university? Okay, well, Walt, this is a question that is on the minds of many of us these days, whether our children are biracial or not. I guess the first thing to point out is that children, until they're indoctrinated into one or another form of tribalism, don't have any of these weird beliefs, right? They're not identified with a subset of humanity until you give them certain ideas. And so the project is to make them increasingly intelligent connoisseurs of bad ideas. I have a 12-year-old daughter who was obliged to read a version of Ibram X. Kendi uh, designed to indoctrinate tweens into his paranoid worldview uh, as her summer reading before 7th grade. You can imagine the joy that brought me to see that of all the books in the Library of Human Knowledge that could have been selected for her edification this summer, she was obliged to read a version of Kendi. But She is smart enough at this point and aware enough uh, of the general shape of the hysteria that has been unfolding around all of us to have formed conclusions about this document that, uh, quite frankly, gave me a lot of comfort. It seems to me that the only thing we need to do is teach our kids to think critically and to be aware of the larger goal, which in this case is to have a society where everyone has all the opportunities they can use. Now, whether we'll ever perfectly achieve that goal remains uncertain, but it's pretty clear that caring more and more about the superficial differences between people can't be a mark of progress toward that goal. And that is something that even a child can recognize. Okay, next question. Hey, Sam, this is Greg Tamblin in Kansas City, Missouri. My question is, why do you think journalism is broken? If you could explain giving some examples, like what are you not getting that you would like to be getting, and also what you would do to quote-unquote fix the New York Times. Thanks. Well, when you're talking about real journalism, not the fake journalism one sees On the extremes of the political spectrum, you're generally talking about institutions that have been captured not by the far right, but by the far left. This is why I have, to the minds of many people, placed an inordinate focus on the problem of wokeism and social justice activism, identity politics, and have spent much less time worrying about the far right. right, because the far right does strike me still as the fringe of the fringe. It's not to say that it's not potentially of great concern. It is. I think the potential for violence there is significant. And as you know, I spent a lot of time focused on Trump, right, which is not quite the same thing as the problem of the far right, i.e. white supremacy. But when you're talking about the far left and the absolutely crazy ideas that thrive there, The belief that this country is irredeemably racist and that whiteness is akin to original sin and that any projection of American power is diabolical and has been since our founding and that capitalism is irredeemable and needs to be entirely scrapped. These are the kinds of ideas that, if believed by the majority of people in any society, Would be synonymous with the destruction of that society. It is a kind of moral and political and economic suicide to be fully taken in by these ideas. And yet they have invaded our mainstream media on the left in some form. So when you ask why is the New York Times broken, it is broken by wokeness above all else. It's broken by identity politics. It's broken by A disposition to believe accusations of racism or sexism or transphobia wherever they are uttered, to believe these things uncritically, the kinds of things listed in that Twitter thread I mentioned previously, the Covington Catholic High School debacle, that white kid staring down a Native American man with that snide smile of white privilege, that situation was totally misunderstood by the media. Or the case of the so-called Karen in the park with her yapping dog, where she was caught on cell phone video threatening to make a call to the cops to report that an African-American man was threatening her and her dog in the park. That, that woman fled the country and is still in hiding over what happened to her on social media and because of what the New York Times did to her in their reporting of that story. And if you want to hear a revealing autopsy on that story, listen to Barry Weiss's recent podcast episode there that she did with Camille Foster. Right? That story was universally misunderstood by the mainstream media, or even in the most extreme case, and the case that I've discussed several times on this podcast, the murder of George Floyd. Every mainstream journalist who commented on that video suggested that what we had witnessed there was Absolute corroboration of our worst fears about extant racism in this country. Who could doubt that what we saw there was the result of homicidal racist hatred on the part of a police officer leading to the death of George Floyd? Well, I would suggest to you that there is absolutely no evidence of racism in that video. And therefore, no one who has ever seen that video has actually seen evidence of racism there. And that is easy to understand if you have your wits about you. And yet, I have yet to see a single mainstream journalist notice that. That's a problem. It's a problem that we can't even discuss the actual statistics of police violence without people going berserk and making further allegations of racism. And clearly, the New York Times isn't up to the job. So from my point of view, the spell simply has to break. This identitarian hysteria has to be condemned for what it is. A moral panic, an utterly retrograde descent into tribalism and hypocrisy. And in the face of the obvious progress we've made on all these points with respect to racism, and sexism, and homophobia, and transphobia, it amounts to a massive instance of gaslighting for our entire society. Once again, I'm obliged to issue the defensive caveats, right? Nothing I just said should be construed as a denial that racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, and any other social problem you want to list still exist, right? Of course they do. And we should condemn them and resist them wherever they surface. And as I've said several times before, I think it's a very good thing that Derek Chauvin will be spending decades in prison for what he did. But on that particular point, there's still no evidence that what he did was motivated by racism. That evidence may be forthcoming, but it's just pure delusion to think that on the basis of that video, we've seen yet another instance of homicidal racism in America. We simply don't have those facts. Okay, enough said. Next question. Hi, Sam. My name is Christina, and I live in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. My question for you is, I read a recently published study investigating the effects of microdosing, which is the first study with a large number of participants that includes a placebo control as well. The conclusion is that microdosing effects come from the placebo effect. If this study is reproducible and the data is reliable, does it change any of your opinions on microdosing? I listened to your most recent podcast on psychedelics on my way to work today, and I would be very interested to hear your take on this. Thank you. Well, thank you, Christina. Yes, I also read that study. If nothing else, it attests to the strength of the placebo. Effect, which is undoubtedly real and worth leveraging. So, if taking a microdose of LSD has the effect it has really because it's just an effective way of leveraging the placebo effect, well, then okay, it still might be worth doing. But of course, one could always just raise the dose incrementally. Uh, And at a certain point, there's no question. That the effect will be more than a placebo. But of course, whether or not it would be good remains to be seen. From my own experimentation on this front, I suspect that that result will not hold up in the end. If we standardize the dose, which was not the case in that study, if memory serves, I think there will be some barely liminal dosage of LSD or psilocybin that will have whatever effects those doses have. And these effects will not be the same as what is found on the placebo arm of the trial. But that will require more research. And I remain agnostic about the utility of microdosing in that range. From my own experience, it seems like it would have an antidepressant effect, but it also seems like it would be bad if anxiety is your problem. So anyway, I think there should be more research there. Thanks for the question. Hi, Sam. I'd rather remain anonymous. My question for you is about American Buddhist culture. I've been meditating with a Buddhist group for the last year, and I found it incredibly worthwhile and life-changing. The teacher is great, and to a person, everyone in the group is dedicated, earnest, and decent. However, there is an assumption that all of us in the group should be aligned politically with ideas that I see as dogmatically leftist and intellectually sloppy. Have you encountered this? And if so, how have you navigated it in your practice? Thank you very much. Yeah, well, long before wokeism landed on the shores of journalism or big tech, or even near the ivory tower, it arrived in Dharma circles going back at least 20 years. There was evidence of ideological capture among Buddhists on this point. So your experience is familiar to me. I haven't really done much with it. I haven't spent time in in any institution, but would have had to navigate around these views. So apart from having some private arguments with people like Joseph Goldstein, I haven't had to deal with it much. But I have no doubt it's a problem. The clearest recent instance of it came from Coleman Hughes, uh, of whom I'm an enormous fan, as most of you know. And he told me a story when he went to IMS, the Insight Meditation Society, where I've done most of my silent retreats. He went there for a, I think it was a week-long or 10-day Vipassana retreat. And on his first day, he was handed an orientation guide in his room. And I believe on the first page of that guide, there was some admonishment that all meditators were asked to consider around their white privilege. Right, and just what it means to have white privilege and how marginalized black and brown people would feel in the context of a silent meditation retreat. And on Coleman's account, the document itself served to marginalize him on that retreat. I mean, the last thing he wanted as a black man on a silent meditation retreat with mostly white people was to have these white people thinking about the significance of having a black man in their midst. Whatever the social truth being gestured at there, the whole thing was profoundly misconceived. Anyway, I'll leave it for Coleman to talk about the significance of all of that, but my more general point, which I've made here on the podcast, is once you understand how deep the practice of mindfulness goes, once you see how it puts into question the very notion of a self, right that you have an identity worth taking seriously, on any level, you must see that the piece of pseudo-ethical software being urged upon you in the form of identity politics is antithetical to the project of achieving the kind of psychological freedom that is being advertised there. The way I've made this point before on the podcast is, when you really know how to meditate, when you really understand. The nature of your mind directly, you understand that you don't have to identify with the face you see in the mirror each day, much less with the millions of people who just happen to superficially resemble the face you see in the mirror each day. So, the idea that in contemplative circles, you have people who are ramifying their racial identity defensively as a social project, I find that as odious. And as unreasonable as you might expect, as for what to do about it, at some point, you just have to be willing to reject it openly. you know, as I am publicly in this context, and as I do in private conversations with people like Joseph. I think most of the Dharma community has been brainwashed on this topic, and it's an ethical and political dead end, and again, obviously incommensurate. With the deeper wisdom and compassion that is there to be realized through practice. I'm not sure how that would help you, but good luck. Okay, next question. Hi Sam, my name is Alex and I live in Seattle, Washington. My question for you is what should the left do in the next four years to prevent Trump or some other Trumpy political figure from taking power in 2024? Well, I have a very simple answer to that question in line with everything that has been said thus far. Stop making the mistakes I've just enumerated. The left has to break up with the extremists in their midst. And by that I mean within every organization that has let these people define the terms of seemingly every conversation of social importance. What we seem to have is a minority of activists, probably disproportionately white and well-educated, who have had a pseudo-spiritual awakening on the topic of Social justice and identity. And they have made so much noise and they've shown a propensity to do so much damage to people's reputations, especially on social media, that they have effectively silenced everyone else. And into that vacuum of apparent acquiescence, they have rammed through one proposal after another that has, in fact, changed the way institutions run. Everything from elementary schools to colleges to HR departments, the degree of capture has been truly impressive. It's never going to get more convenient than it is now to resist this, and unless the left and the Democratic Party in particular resist this, yeah, I think it's totally possible that we'll experience some resurgence of the right and uh, some Trumpist or Trump-like figure, or worse, could emerge as a retort to the craziness on the left. Definitely worth worrying about and rendering less and less likely by getting our shit together. Next question. Hi Sam, my name is Helen Merlot, and I live in Victoria, British Columbia. My question for you is, what are the ingredients for a good life? You've touched on this topic a bit here and there, but it would be great if your ideas were consolidated, like in your recent podcast on free will. Thank you. Okay, the easy question. You know, it actually is surprisingly simple. It doesn't mean that it's easy to make the answer effective in one's life. You know, there are various ways to boil this down, but I think one framing that covers almost everything would be to see this opportunity Of being alive as an opportunity to grow with respect to two variables love and curiosity. For me, love, rightly construed, covers more or less the whole terrain of ethics and a pro social engagement with the world. You know, what it means to be a good person in the world. Understanding what love is and uh, maximizing one's commitment to it, experience of it, clearly that covers at least half of what makes life worth living. And curiosity for me covers the rest. It covers all of intellectual life. Again, both projects seem to me to be open-ended. There's just no telling how rich an individual life can become or how beautiful a society can be where more and more of its citizens have their heads screwed on straight with respect to these two variables. So um, I would say love and curiosity as master values. But the fine print here is important. When you really understand what those terms mean, several things follow. For instance, curiosity covers not only intellectual life, but spiritual life, the contemplative life, understanding what it's like to be you from the inside, right? So everything that I Put on the Waking Up app can be explored purely with curiosity as its motive. And there you find that many of the things you assumed about the nature of your mind aren't true. And there's an immense freedom to be discovered there. So, in my view, the deeper project of self transcendence and even enlightenment can be accessed through either of those doors. Anyway, there's a lot to say on that topic, but I'm saying most of it over at Waking Up. Sam, what are your thoughts about the idea of ends justifying means and the attendant lies the concept engenders? On the one hand, essentially everyone agrees with the idea if the stakes are high enough, and yet it is a fundamental source of human misery and the genesis of some of the worst of man's inhumanity to man. You made a strong case for rigorous honesty and lying, but pure honesty doesn't actually seem to work given human psychology. However, Also, given the misuse of these types of lies, it's hard to know where to find the moral high ground. Thanks. Yes, this is a good question that directly relates to the place where this podcast began on the topic of COVID and global health. It clearly has been tempting for public health officials from Anthony Fauci on down to shade the truth, if not lie outright at various points during this pandemic. And one could well imagine. Seeming imperative under conditions that were more dangerous than COVID. But it's just as clear that those lies and half truths backfire. The instances of apparent lying have given so much energy to this conversation around vaccine safety. I don't think we should be tempted by it, whatever the pragmatic case might be for a specific lie. We have to begin treating people like adults, even as they demonstrate their childlike propensity to do the wrong thing under these conditions. So, I'm just not sold on the prospect of there being many or even any virtuous lies to be found on this landscape. So, therefore, I think our means and our ends need to be properly aligned. And one of the endpoints we need to keep in view beyond mitigating any near term emergency is to have a society that can deal with honest conversation and honest assessments about risk and doesn't need to be paternalistically guided or coerced by misinformation. And when I put it that way, I can readily see that the boundary between what I'm recommending, adult-like conversation about probability and risk, is hard to distinguish from what the just-asking-questions crowd is up to. And it is, in places, genuinely hard to distinguish. And we have to remember, we're always in the position of debating policies and entertaining doubts and grappling with anomalies in a context where the clock is ticking, where we have scarce attentional and material resources, where everything we do represents an opportunity cost. right? So we have to triage our time and attention and continually course-correct. But we're now operating in an environment where even the honest admission of scientific error, brought to light by further scientific scrutiny, is being scored as a failure of science and scientific integrity, right? And that is totally dysfunctional. Yes, there is such a thing as bad science and even scientific fraud, and the remedy for that is good science, right? Not some other mode of conspiracy thinking or witchcraft. And yes, arguments from authority are specious, But that doesn't mean that there's no such thing as scientific or institutional authority, or that we should never rely on it as a proxy for the truth. We can't endlessly tear up the foundations of our knowledge all the time on every front. We can't keep falling into doubt about whether or not water is two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen, demanding that the experiments be rerun. Yes, it's absolutely true. That to make scientific progress, we're continually questioning scientific authority and received opinion. But we still need institutions that produce credible experts on specialized topics that members of the general public are not in a position to deeply understand. Certainly not when the clock is ticking and we have a public health emergency on our hands. So it matters that the epidemiologists and the immunologists and the virus hunters can get on the same page through a systematic analysis of available data in the midst of a public health emergency. And again, podcasts and substack newsletters and Twitter threads are not a surrogate for that process. Yeah, so the scope for lying here, I think, is non-existent. I'm sure we could come up with a thought experiment where I would say, yes, of course, you got to lie there. But as for the real world, I think the downsides of lying are usually experienced right on schedule. So I think we have to keep that door closed. Hey, Sam, my name is Dan and I live in Madison, Wisconsin. My question for you is this. On the subject of mindfulness, I find myself getting stuck on a paradox. If the present moment is all that matters. How do we justify looking forward to things like career advancement, a vacation, or future personal achievements? I find it hard to square being a good practitioner of mindfulness while also living a normal life. How exactly does one know when the ideal amount of mindfulness has been applied? Some context, I recently encountered this conundrum while speaking with a friend about his college aspirations. He joked that my excitement for his future didn't align with my advice to quote-unquote live in the moment. Thanks. Yeah, this strikes me as a um, a misunderstanding of what one can reasonably expect from one's mindfulness practice. One is inevitably going to think about the past and future, and be captured by those thoughts. However much one practices, in the normal case, and there's nothing wrong with finding those thoughts enjoyable, and in particular, planning intelligently and creatively for a future that one will want to live in. That's actually necessary. Unless one is going to be a monk or a yogi living in a cave and just have one day follow the next without hoping to make any other contribution to this world, one has to spare some thought for how to get things done and what one wants to do. And so one will have dates on the calendar and projects in various stages of completion and conferences to go to Uh, and vacations to take, etc. So, to be looking forward to things that one is planning to do, that's a totally ordinary operation of mind that can be a source of happiness. And the truth is, I would even recommend that one intelligently engage that very attitude. So, for instance, if you're going to take a vacation with your friends or your family at some point in the next year in my view, it makes sense to put it on the calendar early and plan for it, think about it, and derive whatever pleasure you can get from looking forward to it. That strikes me as generally better than suddenly taking a vacation when it becomes mission-critical to do so without having spent any time extracting the pleasure of anticipation from it. In a smaller way, It's the difference between planning to have a great meal with friends later in the week, knowing that's on the calendar, looking forward to it, making the most of it, or suddenly finding yourself at a table with nice food, eating with people who you happen to like, but there was really no time spent looking forward to it. The former case is generally more enjoyable. Where mindfulness comes in, Is in all these other moments in life where there's no reason to think about the future or the past. And the question is, how do you feel in the present? You know, what are you doing with your attention now? How good do you feel now? How free of your problem are you now? And what happens when these plans you were looking forward to unravel? What happens when the vacation gets canceled or your flight gets delayed or the destination is not as nice as you expected right what is your mind like then and when you find yourself reacting to something in a contracted unhappy way how quickly do you notice and how quickly can you recover and what do you like to be around in those moments when you get angry and the toxicity of your anger leaks out into the world, and your family and friends have to suffer your company, how long does it take you to reset and become a tolerable human being again? Or better still, how long does it take you to laugh at yourself and be truly restored to a position of real psychological freedom? That's where this binary choice between being in the moment and not is worth invoking, and really matters. But as for closing down any thought for the far future, that doesn't strike me as a proper function of mindfulness. In fact, I would encourage everyone to spare a thought, not just for their own futures, but for a time horizon beyond that. I think it's worth some of our time and attention to make decisions in light of a future we know we will never personally see. Right? Just how do we want the world to be after we've left it? I think rather a lot depends on all of us sparing some thought for the distant future and for the world that our descendants are likely to inherit. Because there are certain kinds of decisions we seem very unlikely to make if we're unable to do that. Anyway, I'll leave it there. Thank you all for the questions, and I will see you back here on the podcast soon.